Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. On this episode, we welcome Matthew Walker and Jane Davies, the team behind the new Admin series, Lloyd of the Flies. Hello, everyone. We're back. Squiggly Animation Podcast with me, Ben Mitchell, and Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. Did you survive the summer? Just about. A couple of rough patches here and there where it got a bit heated, I dare say. It certainly did. Made it through okay in the end, you know? How about yourself? Yeah, yeah, made it through uh, just as you did. Uh, went to a fair few events, which was quite nice. You know, everything's opening back up and all that sort of stuff. But it's just been absolutely unbearable. Annecy was absolutely swellering. Yeah. It it was like the air was trying to kill you. It was absolutely (laughs) insane. Um, I've never quite known anything like it. Um, And the apartment we were at had uh, gave us, generously gave us some fans to blow all the hot air around the room, which is quite nice. I'm glad to have missed that one. I'm not glad to have missed, you know, the the jubilation. But uh, I'm not a big fan of the the overbearing, unrelenting heat. It's, you know, usually with Anasu, they break it up with a couple of days of hideous, hideous stormy weather too. Yeah, we'd do a big old storm. We'd do a big old Annecy thunderstorm. One of those, like, you think that hell's raining down on you. One of those. That's all we ask. That's all we wanted this year. But yeah, all the better for the uh, for for you know getting inside those air conditioned cinemas. But that was June. That was miles. That was ages ago. Good lord, ages ago, Ben. What's been happening since? Hmm. Well, I I finally kind of overcame what had been I you know starting to get a bit uh, overcautious. I think about traveling and stuff like that, and I had had some anxiety about international travel. So I finally overcame that, and I went over to uh, Norway for a couple of days doing some stuff for the Frederikstad Festival, which is going to be end of October, and then came back and then immediately got COVID, <laughs> probably from the airport coming back. So, you know, my all my anxieties proved absolutely well-founded. <laughs> but, you know, COVID in, in 2022 is is but a sniffle. Yeah. You know, we just, we just walked it off. That's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it you know, you, you're like, oh, well, at least you've had it. Mm. You're like, but I didn't want it. Yeah. It was still awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got it, uh, I think about April time. And uh, I was absolutely good because I was, I was visiting family. And it meant that I just had to, I had to go into a room by myself, sit there and watch Netflix for three days. It was awful, Ben. Just sat there on my own, not having to interact with anybody, <laughs> not having to change any nappies, not having to have any of the same conversations. You're living hell. It was it was torture. Well, we live to fight another day. <laughs> so, what's on the podcast? Podcast. I forgot how to podcast. I always forget how to podcast. What's on the podcast this month? This month, our special guests will be um, friends. Oh, Squiggly! People who we have had on the podcast in the past. Uh, our pals Matthew Walker and Jane Davies. Jane used to be on the podcast a bunch back in the day. <laughs> Yeah. I think she was in at least like two or three. No, before. no, no. It's between her and Peter Lord for like the person who's been on the most times. And I think it's like five or six. It's, it's like an insane amount of times. <laughs> um, like, yeah, there's uh, she, she's probably 
racked up the most amount of times. But all for brilliant projects. You know, we had her on for the, yeah. the Chapman uh, project or Project Chapman as it was when you did the interview and then it became um, the, uh, what was it called in the end? A Liar's Autobiography. Uh, mm. Where they uh, they gathered together loads of animation studios, big and small, to uh, create segments of uh, Monty Python's Graham Chapman's autobiography, uh, and Jane was part of that. Matthew also worked on that at the time. He would have been at, I guess, Arthur Cox, mm. uh, which I don't believe is a going concern still. It's been kind of resorbed into Ardman, like a hungry fetus resorbs its twin. <laughs> And Jane was at A Productions, which was, or A for Animation, which I think was what A Productions was originally called. And then they brought back A for Animation just for that project. She was at A Productions for ages. She was like, I think probably one of the main reasons why uh, she was so involved is she was kind of the voice of A Productions for a while on their social media. And this was back in a time I have, I can barely scarcely remember a time when Twitter was a nice website to be. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I've literally had to give up Twitter because of hypertension. <laughs> like, it, it, isn't it amazing what a pleasant place it was? It was like a big group chat with all the people you want to talk to <laughs> and all the things they had to say were interesting and not just blatantly obvious, not at all hot takes about not just echo chambers echoing to each other or spitting at each other. There was a bit of that, you know, but it was, you know, that, it was sort of sprinkled in. So it was fun. Do we used to do like the, the, the squiggly challenge and oh, yeah. it was like, draw a sheep because Sean, the sheep's out and people would draw a sheep and send us pictures. Imagine if we tried that now. It'd be like, draw a sheep. Fuck you. You're cancelled. You're not going to draw a fucking woke cuck sheep. (laughs) Oh, what's wrong with cows, you bastard? Uh, Yeah, so at at a certain point, I think about five, six years ago, she um, went back to freelance, Jane. And the freelance world, I think, really kind of embraced her because Jane is one of those people that everyone either has worked with or for at one point. Mm. And literally half the people I know credit Jane as playing some role in their big break if they work locally. Yeah. By big break, I mean, you know, that first big gig that actually gets them in a position where they can network and, you know, put a face to the name and actually prove themselves in a production pipeline environment. And I'd always kind of rooted for her to end up being involved in something like the project that she's involved in at the moment. And uh, similarly, uh, Matthew Walker, and it's kind of his baby, this project, someone I've known since I, pretty much since I first moved to Bristol. And uh, he had been very much sort of celebrated because of his Newport student film. And I think that even got picked up by Ron Diamond at one point. Um, It was just one of those student films that just like everyone absolutely adores. And I remember it a girl in my MA showed it to me and it was this kind of masterclass in how do you make a film with like limited resources. And there are all these things in the production that are kind of like, you know, corners being cut, but in a way that serves the action and serves the comedy and, um, you know, sort of simple production design kind of thing, but it's really good, you know, comedy timing and stuff like that. Is this, is this operator? No, this is astronauts. Oh Uh, yes. Yeah. That was his, a CG was, one. Yeah. Yeah. And he pretty much went back to 2D for a long time. I think most of the production work he did was 2D, except for um, uh, Little Face, which was what he was working on when I met him. And that was a film with uh, Adam Buxton, who has an imaginary friend who's a little sort of CG 
like Mr. Men type thing. And that I think had not quite turned out how he planned. I think that because, you know, he was making films, it was one of these sort of like mini bubbles of films getting sort of funded or, you know, getting funded, but with caveats. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, really a golden age for short films, but I remember being quite inspired by the work he was doing, you know, because I was doing my student film at the time and, and I knew that it was possible to actually make work and get it seen and that festivals were still, you know, a big part of the whole, you know, building one's career and one's profile. And I think seeing him and the work he was doing was really kind of helpful for me in that mm. respect. And he's in my book uh, quite a bit talking about like story and some of the things I was just mentioning there, like approaches to production design and economics and that sort of thing. So what's happened recently, they, uh, they've they been working on a show, Jane and Matt Together, called Lloyd of the Flies, and this was uh, part of the Young Audience Content Fund. I think they got their funding back in 2019 or 2020. Mm. They've been working on that for a while since, and so it's now finally uh, launched this week. Uh, I think they've made like 52, and so it's going to be rolled out on weekdays for the foreseeable future. On one hand, it's one of the really nice things about doing a podcast like this is projects come along from time to time that our friends are at the helm of. And, you know, it's, it's a nice feeling to be able to kind of celebrate that. Also it's being made by Ardman and it is just a good show. Like it's, you know, I think a public service thing that we can do you and I, <laughs> Stephen have done over the years is to kind of like let parents out there know which shows are tolerable <laughs> that they can steer their offspring toward that won't yeah. drive them absolutely nuts. They're out there. They're a little thin on the ground. I do think there's there's a higher percentage of obnoxious shows. And you know, hey, I, I watched a fair few obnoxious shows as a kid that drove my parents batshit, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know, there are one the ones that you kind of return to and the ones that kind of linger seem to be the ones that are just more kind of well thought through and a little bit more thoughtful and yeah. I have a feeling, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but Lloyd is one of those shows that will help somebody shape their sense of humour. It it will really kind of... It, it, it's a certain branch of comedy that uh, has has really kind of, kind of found its feet in the last 10 or so years. It's kind of socially awkward comedy. Mm, uh, yeah. The likes of... Um, well, the likes of like... Um, uh, the main the main star in in Lloyd the Flies is uh, the guy from uh, uh, from Plebs and from Friday Night Dinner. Tom Rosenthal is it? Uh, and and you know if you like that type of Friday Night Dinner Plebs, um, in between us that type of thing. It, it's it's ex it's that for kids basically, isn't it? It's that type of you know the, those types of characters and and kind of exploring that that type of world. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, definitely one that you're not going to regret sitting down and watching. You're not going to go, oh God, this again. You're going to be like, oh, what are they no. doing this week? What's going to happen? What's happening now? Uh, so yeah, we've not got a gun to our heads here. We decide exactly what goes on the podcast and when it goes on the podcast. And this is a good piece of work that needs to be shared and seen. We've seen, well, we've seen the first four episodes. I get the impression that because I've talked to some people who were kind of peripherally involved and some people who are actually sort of very directly involved, um, which I probably shouldn't name for that reason. But <laughs> I, I've been hearing different people's like comparisons to how it sort of shapes up. I do think after the first four episodes, 
you know, you're going to get a sense of the world and the characters and the humor of it. And I think these are, uh, they're good episodes. They do make a good first impression. Uh, I, f- I probably imagine by episode like 10, it'll really hit like a certain stride. And then by toward the end of the season, it will have like a real sort of sense of itself and a really good flow working at which characters interact best with which other characters. Uh, I know there are some other kind of guest stars lined up over the course of it. It's something I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how it plays out. But I've heard some interesting comparisons. One person compared it to Frasier. Oh, wow. Someone else compared it to Bojack Horseman. <laughs> it's like, all right, I'll, I'm interested to see how that plays out or uh, in what respect. Because that could mean a lot of things. Like, Bojack had a lot of, of... It went to a lot of places and, you know... Yeah, how that translates I can, to... I can see I can see Frasier. I can mm. see Frasier. Yeah, the the dinner episode that we've seen. Yeah. That type of... There's, there's a particular episode we saw, uh, Smoothie Operator, where they have to go to uh, another character called Cornea uh, to go to Lloyd and the family, have to go around to Cornea's house. Cornea is a terrible cook, uh, known for mixing ingredients, which is something flies obviously don't do. They'll eat anything. Uh, but this cooking is particularly awful. And the whole episode is, it's like that scene in Mr. Bean when he's trying to get rid of his steak tartare. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, sweeping it under the, under the rug and, you know, throwing it out. But a lot better than that. There's lots of side gags. There's lots of kind of, you know, that, that beautiful British sense of social awkwardness that, that kind of runs as a thread throughout, which is, it's why a lot of British people like Frasier because mm. it's about social awkwardness and social awkwardness is never really something, well, it's in the good American sitcoms, but it's not something that they usually go for in American sitcoms. So the premise is essentially, uh, it's about a fly uh, called Lloyd, as the title would denote. It's about Lloyd B. Fly, a house fly, the middle child of 451, who lives with his parents, his little sister, PB, and their 224 maggot siblings inside a compost bin they call home. In the series, Lloyd and PB are usually accompanied by Lloyd's best friend, Abacus Whidlouse, and eccentric tag-along Cornea Butterfly. Together they explore the strange world beyond the compost bin, where there's no shortage of lessons for Lloyd to very nearly learn. <laughs> uh, Abacus Woodlouse, the character... I'm not sure if this is a conscious thing. As an observer, that feels very much modelled on Matt himself. <laughs> yeah, is, um, right. Or perhaps the actor's performance style is just sort of Matt Walker-esque. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned his film Operator earlier. Uh, it's a film where he does the voice of the character. So you could sort of watch that and kind of compare and contrast to see what I mean. Yeah, like he's, yeah. not, he's not really doing a character. He's just being Matt in that film. <laughs> uh, very understated, I guess, would be the word. That's the thing with the visuals also, it, it feels very high-end for mm. a, a 52-episode, you know, production that I imagine would have had to have been put out at quite a clip. Yeah. They've really worked out a nice sort of hybrid style. You've got these really lovely painted backgrounds and environments, and, you know, it's, it's CG, but with that kind of stop-motion sensibility in places... But yeah, you know, more of its sort of own design style. There's two D bits as well. I noticed, like the the food, uh, like the soup, like the froth on top of the soup was two uh, D. Yeah, and nice little bits and bobs like that. I, I yeah, really, really nice blend. Yeah. Well, why don't we why don't we have the interview a little early? We usually have the interview later on. Well, why not? Why not? Like it's our podcast. We'll do what we want. <laughs> who's who's going to stop us, Ben? Exactly. Well, the listener. 
We, Tell us how to live our lives. What are you going to do? Well, you can't do anything. All you're doing is listening. What are you going to You can't edit. You can't change things around. You have no power. Please keep listening to the podcast and subscribe and tell your friends. And, and please don't don't edit the podcast and put it up on your own channel and get better metrics than us. Because <laughs> that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, so I was able to chat with our pals Matthew Walker and Jane Davies over at Admin, where they're making Lloyd of the Flies. Cool, so here we are at Ardman with Matthew Walker and Jane Davies, old friends of the Squiggly podcast. I actually uh, was listening back to when we had you on last, which was about 10 years ago, I think, together. That was for the um, Chapman Project. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. It was. <laughs> um Yeah, it's sort of a full circle thing. Also, I think being here in uh, Gas Ferry, this was where I recorded the first ever squiggly podcast interview that was with uh, peter no when uh, pirates was a new release <laughs> <laughs> so yeah nice to be back uh well congratulations you have a new show uh that has just come out i believe it's coming out the day this podcast comes out 20th, 20th yeah, yeah. Uh, it was going to come out yesterday but uh things happened in the world mm. so uh and of course people listening in the future it'll already be out um and ongoing it's called lloyd of the flies did this come from anywhere that it existed before or was it developed specifically? Because I know it was like young audience content found, right? Yeah, it wasn't an idea I'd had before. It was basically about, it must be about six years ago, Bardman did a call out for sort of new ideas, um, sort of an internal call out looking for new IP and stuff, primarily kids TV series. And I wanted to pitch something and... I didn't have any existing kids series ideas and I'd like to say that you know it was born of my love of insects but really I just came up with the title first and worked backwards <laughs> from that um so yeah the initial pitch was just a brief outline of a vague idea and then some sketches and then it kind of grew from there um to what will now be broadcast today I imagine then with funding comes you know people sort of weighing in or just sort of general kind of internal feedback external feedback did it change much from that kind of original idea as it developed it did i think it it was quite an organic process because i didn't have a solid i you know fully formed idea at the beginning it was had the character had a vague idea of the world and um and his best friend abacus woodlouse and his little sister pb and Corny the Butterfly, they were always there from the beginning, along with Lloyd's family. So the kind of the basic, yeah, the basic building blocks of the idea were there and they never changed. Actually, you know, building the world out from that, that was a sort of gradual process and and a lot of back and forth of trying to get, you know, work out the how the world worked and how the what the characters' relationships were and particularly Lloyd's character, you know, that developed over time and yeah, because originally it was pitched a bit older and then kind of, you know, aged it down for, it's you know, now aimed for, I think, I can't remember what the original idea was, but, you know, it's now aimed at 8 to 11 year olds um, and family. So the, you know, the idea kind of became more family friendly than it originally had been. Does that then kind of create issues as far as like needing to be aware of ideas as they, you come up with them? Or is it helpful to have it be more sort of a family show? I think so. 
so I think the benefit of it not being an idea I already had was that I was quite open to letting it develop yeah. in whatever direction felt best because it wasn't I didn't it wasn't like a, something I'd been nurturing for years and had a very particular idea about so it, it was quite organic the way it developed so I was, I was always happy with where it was going and I'm happy with the end result I think it was I mean the main thing was me was just to create a show with really strong funny characters and once we got the character of Lloyd down and the dynamic with his family and his friends that was a really solid basis for the series then and then it was just about making sure the humour didn't go too dark and stuff which you know sometimes my humour has a tendency to do but it was it wasn't an issue not doing that it was, I was quite happy with tailoring it for the family audience yeah so that core group then of characters that have remained mostly unchanged do they come from anywhere in particular do they draw on life at all or i don't think so i mean the original concept was lloyd being this fly who didn't want to leave home and and he was quite sort of an unusual fly he likes hanging out with his best friend who's a woodlouse and then has a little sister who you know is always trying to join in but it wasn't really based on anything in particular. But I think it was always, yeah, trying to get that, you know, friendship and family stuff and trying to make it relatable, but applying that to uh, the insect world. I really wanted to kind of draw on the insect world for interesting situations that they could be in. So it's sort of applying, you know, taking insect situations, but, you know, anthropomorphizing it and applying, you know, human emotions to it and characterization. Yeah. There were there were a few pilots made as well, and in through the various stages of development, and I think Lloyd as a whole became less abrasive for the yeah. series. He started off being a lot more, I don't know, how would you this say, angry, aggressive. Yeah, it was just more than. Yeah. I mean, it was. <laughs> I think the, I guess the Lloyd. For me, it was always the comedy of his character. Was always sort of he's his own worst enemy. He's like Fraser or Alan Partridge. So, you know, he's you know he he'll create situations for himself and get himself into trouble. And I think you know there's aspects of that comedy which you know the character ended up being, I guess, not unlikable, but more negative than he is now. Kind of as we you know as we moved it more towards targeting a family audience, yeah. we warmed up Lloyd's character and. And certainly for the benefit, I think he's a much better character now than he was when I first you know, fought him up. You, you're meant to, you know, obviously you, he's the centre. He's it, he, We're meant to care about him. So it was like the very, very much decide, you know, necessary for him to be a likeable character. Yeah. Although flawed. He has to be flawed. Yeah. He's a, yeah, that's how I always imagined him. He's, you know, wanting to be likeable, but also flawed. He's not a... He's definitely not a. Um, it's not a superhero yeah. or no. anything. Or I think he's, <laughs> he's more normal, a average yeah. person. And we've retained, yeah. retained that, you know, that core aspect of him being his own worst enemy, and mm. yeah, you know, he always make a problem worse before he makes it better, and that's where the, a lot of the comedy comes from. So. It's also with all the characters as well. There's so many characters. You you did a thing. How many extra characters? 79 (laughs) I mean that's that's, you know a combination of named characters characters with lines and just individual insect characters whether they have a name or a line or not but yeah just counting up all the 
separate insects that we've created for the series. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, I didn't realise how large a number it was. <laughs> and what was really nice as well is that, um, you know, when we started off earlier episodes, they, they there was a character that would appear and then they then kept appearing and then appeared more. And then there was also relationships that would develop in the other characters as well, yeah. which I thought was really great. And the way just the, the way the whole world grew as we went along. Yeah, it's kind of nice when that sort of happens, like as a kind of organic layering, I guess, yeah. of a character. But like with like old Simpsons, like how a character would exist for one joke, yeah. and then eventually they'd just become <laughs> a character. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite nice when that sort of happens. Because um, I think that's definitely something that has happened. Because yeah. with the writers and everything, and the, the way it's all gone, it's like I think what Matt did was brilliant. Because it happened quite quickly when we actually, you know, had been developing it gradually over the course of a few years, but then it was kind of through lockdown where it very quickly sort of, you know, it used to be a 2D series and it became CG. Um and then it was kind of in the year leading up to production starting at the beginning of um, 2020. Yeah, 2021. Yeah. 2021. Um, it was that year before that was when we kind of most of the development happened quite quickly. And then, and that was the point where we were bringing in um, uh, some extra writers and starting to you know, properly form the, the basis of the series before it went into production. Even then, once we started writing, it was, you know, the the main core of it was there, but there was a lot of, you know, we only had a handful of characters and it was through the writing process that, um, yeah, that we started to expand the world and the characters and also sort of discover what the series was really. It, was, it wasn't, um, it was quite organic once we went into production. It was, you know, ideally we probably would have had a more established series ready to go into production, but just the nature of how quickly it happened meant that we were working a lot out as we wrote it. But when did it start production, like, proper? Uh, it was January... 21. 20, yeah. So it was, it was um, sort of mid-2020, because the CG department at Ardman didn't have a lot on at the time, and we decided to build Lloyd in CG just to see how it looked, and yeah. then... Really liked how it looked. Did an animation test. Really liked that. And that was at that point was fully CG. Then realised it would be vastly too expensive to make fully CG. And that's when we sort of developed the hybrid of um, you know, CG characters and two D backgrounds that we ended up with. And and while all that was happening, we were starting to you know develop the initial batch of scripts. So I think before we went into production, we had five finished scripts and then the rest were written you know as we went into production in the following January. So when we went into production that was all the pre-production so we started January first well pretty much straight away January 21 and then we had seven months of pre-production and that is we had to figure out everything so do it like building all the rigs all the proxies because all the sets and everything are are built in cg to uh so we can get the shadows and then that also then means the 
the backgrounds can be drawn and painted from using the proxy of the, the set and everything. But we also had to figure out the pipeline and how we were going to do it. And it was quite a, a, a big feat. <laughs> but then there's also the design, how we were going to do it, how it was going to look, because obviously the props were CG. So it was figuring out a way where the props and the backgrounds would sort of go hand in hand. But then we also had 2D um, flash FX animation in it as well. So it's, it's quite a little bit of a mixed media yeah. thing. But I think that you know, the um, style we ended up with, the 2D CG hybrid, ended up being far more complicated than we'd yeah. anticipated. It, it was super crazy. Mm. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it was just uh, just to figure out the pipeline, how each stage was going to feed into the next. And with, with the schedule and the budget that we had, that we had to deal with, um, pretty much almost fit there were there were a few like areas we had to change and things because it was a super complicated and we're also everyone who was working was all remote and we were all remote for the first good almost year because it was all working from home and but um the the main crew were gonna always be remote anyway which um which was good because we, we kind of had a bit more of a outreach so it wasn't just people who could be in Bristol so that helped a lot and the animations on twos as well which is also quite unusual for CG uh, you know we had a lot of animators at first who some hadn't some had because we were lucky we got a lot of we got quite a few people from like working on actual other 2D all CG all CG shows that were on too. So we did have some, but, um, you know, your, your usual bread and butter 52, 11 minute series aren't usually on too. So there were quite a few stumbling blocks at the beginning, but mm. we were so lucky in everyone who we had. Yeah. I think the whole show, I think with like what Matt was saying, it's like all the elements put together. I think it's, it's kind of given it as almost a little bit of a stop motion feel that we didn't intend because also it's like the the look dev everything down to the look dev on the characters it, i think we yeah they got it's just really so lovely, lovely look when you go in close to the characters <laughs> it's just uh, i think some of all of its all of its parts i just i'm just so overly overjoyed at how it's all turned out and that was all happening at the same time as the <laughs> yeah. scripts were being written, so it was you know a feedback loop where you know we're as we're writing the scripts, we're then seeing what we can and can't achieve in the production, and then that has to go. You know, can we do this in the script? Okay, we've got to change this, and so it was a yeah, that first six months was a very intense yeah period of <laughs> well, <the laughs> trying to discover what this series is and, and how we're going to achieve it. Yeah, the first year and a half's been quite intense, but. Overly, very much. Yeah. Worth it. At what point, Jane, were you brought in? Oh, pretty you, much. Um, uh, well, because I worked on the pilots with Yeah, Matt. so it was like, like the f- was that a year before, two years before. Well, that was two years before, because I did... Because initially it used to be a half hour. Um, the original idea was it would be a half hour sort of sitcom, and we did a half hour animatic and then off the back of that, we did a couple of animation tests, and that's when Jane 
it came was, in it to was work. the first very first pitch wasn't it yeah they, they were the flash 2d things yeah. did so, those. and then there was we did a pilot it was in toon boom so that was like figuring it out like oh if we can actually make this into a series let's try toon boom but but then it was uh, uh, basically it's been quite a few years so yeah, i've been so sort of hanging around quiet. for this for years <laughs> Because I, I just I've loved it f- since then, and and then when I found out it was CG, I was like, oh, oh, they're not gonna. Because I was like, probably gonna be the animation director, and I thought, oh, it's CG. That means I can't be the animation director. That's. I was a bit sad, but I thought it's a great project. I let them off, <laughs> but then but then um, I got asked to be the co-director on it, and the voice director, and I was like, you yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was really quite Which I was very glad about because, you know, <laughs> year and eight months later, I'm nearing the end. It's sort of, a, you know, the vast amount of work that making 52 10-minute episodes is. <laughs> I don't know how one person can do it. No. Well, when I was initially asked, because um, I wasn't very well at the time, there was like, well, it would be four days a week. And, um, you know, it wouldn't be a lot of hours. And I was like, this is going to be a lot. There's, there's a lot and I was like okay well we'll see and then I think I went full time probably at the beginning middle of February because <laughs> it was like yeah there's, there's not enough time but the way we split our time between us I thought it was really good because Matt is all the front end the so scripts script. and storyboards yeah. and, and animatics then, we start to overlap at the animatic stage yeah. and then which was really good, actually, because we kind of crossed at the animatic stage because I was doing the voice directing as well. Being involved in the animatic stage really helped as well. And then I then uh, looked over the layout and the animation bit, but we had, like, animation director, just Seamus Malone, who's amazing, and again, he's from a st- stop motion background as well as CG. So yeah. that was that was a real coup getting him on board. Um, and then um, and then Matt comes back on when it's all comped. And then we yeah, and then and then, the and then I'm overseeing the sound and music and yeah, final stages of the production. Um, oh, and you also overseeing the the mats the pack. Yeah, the, the painted backgrounds right. as well. Matt had more of an eye on that and stuff, and we kind of just sort of yeah, kind of crisscrossed, the, yeah. Quite a bit. yeah. And we, you know, we both, um, yeah, worked together much more um, at the very beginning on the animation side because yeah, we were doing you know working with Seamus and the lead animators to um, uh, you know to create to establish the style and create sort of animation loops and stuff to sort of get the ball rolling mm. so I was more involved in the animation at that stage yeah like what and what Matt wanted and, and then early voice records yeah. to sort of establish the, the tone of the humour and get the character voices down but then yeah, I was able to just leave you to it with <laughs> the voice acting it was good that you know Matt trusted me I knew what Matt wanted and um I, it was kind of I, I think we made quite a good team whereas I think Matt could 
Matt's got such an eye on detail and everything, and and I think I think where we balance each other out for series, whereas I'm probably a little bit more slapdash trying to get it done quick for the uh, schedule and budget, and Matt's like, well, no, we need this bit. This is really important. So we kind of met in the middle a bit. And you're more realistic in what we can and can't achieve. <laughs> be like, yeah, but we can't do that. <laughs> but I want to do that. <laughs> And then, but there were some times when you know I'd be like, we can't do that, and you're like, but that's really important. And then yeah, with I the mean, team, we got such an amazing team. Sometimes when things seemed really impossible, but they were made possible. Sometimes um, I think it was such a collaborative yeah. whole. We've got an amazing, crew. amazing crew. I think I think that's what I really love about it is what the way it's turned out is such a collaborative thing. And I think the, I guess the, you know, the difficulty, but also the benefit of making so many episodes is, you know, you kind of quickly sort of work out what isn't isn't important, and you know, and then you know what problems to look for in later episodes. And mm. so it's, you know, as the process has gone on, we've kind of established a rhythm, and and it's, um, you know, now everyone really knows what they're doing, and it, it's. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's that's what's really good about making so many episodes. As huge amount of a work it is, as huge amount of work that it is, it has allowed us to really kind of establish a very strong sort of style to the series, both from the look and the humour. And yeah, you know, so yeah, you know, I think you know later episodes definitely. You know, you can see how. <laughs> I, I, well, it, it's got a lot of heart I feel I, I think you know it's from all the elements coming together and I think also it's the voice cast as well yeah. um, and the writing and then the whole look of it and everything and, and the actual the animation as well it's just everything but I think the the heart of it and the relationships I think for me is the one big aspect is like whenever we did um, the animation briefings with Seamus before the animation started on an episode it was always like why the characters were doing what they're doing and uh, I would highlight points that you know me and Matt knew because we were working through it like you know finessing it in the animatic stage it's like well, they're doing this because of this and make sure that's important because of this. And that level of detail, I think, I've, I've not really experienced before in all my years of working on series. Mm. So that was a big pleasure because there was that heart. I think that's, that's, you know, the characters, they've got so much love for each other or, or hatred, some hate. Some <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, it's the actual... You can see motives behind what characters are doing, and you know, and even background characters. Or there's just so much level to detail on so many aspects. I think that's what, yeah, I think brings it all together as well. Actually, I, I realised what I was trying to say with, you know, because we're doing so many episodes, and that meant there was so much overlap. So you know, ep- late, later episodes were still being were being written while earlier episodes are being animated, and because of that. There's a you know feedback, so it's like you know what's being animated can then feed back into what's being written, and 
like you know as you discover what characters are, are working and what you know what the actors bring to the performances and and then you just you know suddenly you know certain characteristics that the actors bring to a character that we then put that into later scripts <laughs> yes and so it's and so i think that's what was nice about making so many episodes because we could then you know take these tiny characters that appeared in one episode early on and then suddenly have an old whole episode devoted to them later on just because yeah. the actor did such a brilliant job with the performance and they really <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny so it's for, for example, there was like there was two characters, there's uh, Jim and Bob, that were in the very first episode um, that we made. Um, and yeah, then, they were only yeah, they were, written for that episode. Yeah. It wasn't they weren't written as recurring characters, but now they're probably they they, they appeared, appeared in more episodes and then they <laughs> appeared, and then suddenly they're living together, and then you know it's just it's just. <laughs> But when they appear, you know what you're going to get with them because they're such characterful characters. Yeah. I think that's what think is that's, important. It's yeah. like so many, all the characters. Well, it's what the writers so defined. and it's what the writers responded to as well because obviously the writers would pitch ideas for episodes and um, and I think that's what came about with Bob and Jim and Barry and Lloyd's nemesis, where you know the writers would read a character in another script. And you know, just instantly know what they wanted could do with that character and pitch an idea based on that character. But it wasn't always the intention that oh, this character we want you to do something with. It was just you know, that we could see see could see when a character popped, and then it was okay, let's do something with that character. Mm. It's like Barry. When I originally came up with Barry, he wasn't originally a very big part of the series, but then it turned out that him and Lloyd had such a funny relationship and Barry was such a funny character in himself that he ended up being a huge part of the series as this antagonist for Lloyd. When you have this many stories and a team of writers, are you then kind of overseeing all of that, like making sure it's kind of tonally consistent and do you come up with all the stories or other people like pitching ideas once they've sort of seen? A combination. So it's, yeah, I was definitely overseeing the whole script process. The way it worked, we had a team of writers and they'd, you know, at the very beginning I did a, a Bible that we sent out to all the writers that sort of described all the characters in the world. And and then we had a couple of sort of writers' room sessions at the beginning. Um, and then the writers would pitch ideas, which... Initially, we did it in person over Zoom in the writers' rooms, but then I think just the speed we were working, we you know didn't end up doing many of them. So it'd usually just be you know every now and then we get sent a batch of like paragraph long um, episode ideas, and then from then we pick the ones we really liked, and then the writers would um, you know sometimes I might say yeah I really like that, do that, or I might say I really like this aspect. Can you? maybe move it in this direction. And then they'd come back with a um, a treatment, like a one-page outline. And then there'd be another round of feedback. And again, sometimes it would you know, be great as it was. Sometimes I'd sort of guide it in a different direction. Like there might be aspects that I really liked that then might change the story a bit. And so, and then that would go to a first draft script. And then we'd, so we'd do two... Um, and we have 
we had two head writers, um, Andrew and Kieran, who were, say, were the ones sort of overseeing the writers and, you know, so they'd be sending all the ideas onto, um, onto me and the producers for feedback. Uh, and then they'd, so we do, uh, sorry, it's been a while ago since we did scripts, so I'm trying to remember the process. So we did two, three drafts. Uh, so the first draft, second draft, and then the third draft would be the polish that um, Andrew and Kieran would do. And then I'd be sent the scripts to do a final polish, which usually was meant to be sort of just, you know, just getting consistency with the characters and the dialogue. But I think because of this, the nature of the series, it was, you know, a new series, I'd ended up sometimes doing more than that just to get the um just to keep the tone consistent across all the episodes and also just you know cramming in any extra jokes that I thought of and stuff so it's so it's quite an organic process with the scripts but I think once yeah well I think the early scripts was obviously it's always going to be difficult with a new series but once the writers kind of understood the world and the characters became much easier and <laughs> and then, um, like when we did the voice recording, um, there'd be the occasional because as we went on, each each actor got round their character, and then there would be the occasional thing where it'd be like, "Well, how how about if we say it like this?" And then you know things like that happened a lot that we would adjust things ever so slightly. But what was also quite good is that, which I found unusual. I would encourage them because we'd do the the reads as the script is, and then occasionally, like a um, an actor would be like, "Oh, can I try this?" and they'd try an ad lib or doing something slightly different. And I would encourage that because you know, at the end of the day, it gives us so much more to work with at the animatic stage. And um, quite a few of the the voice actors who had done lots of stuff before, they were like, they really enjoyed it because sometimes they just weren't allowed to ad lib which I found quite weird because it was like, and there's quite a lot of ad-libs that have ended up in the show, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, but it's because of that initial, those scripts, you know, so many times the actors are like, this, this script's really great. And because it then made them excited about it, I think they just really put so much into their characters and stuff. But I think when, when um, one of the things that, I did want to say is like whenever I, I would we always used to start with recording Tom who, Tom Rosenthal's uh, Lloyd we'd always start with his record because I found that then it kind of set the tone for the show and how Lloyd was and then that kind of like fed how I would get or steer the other characters in those shows so I, I, you know, I've got so much respect for Tom, and and he was one straight away who would just say, "This doesn't sound right," and then sometimes he would say something a little funnier, but he's a comedian, you yeah. know. So sometimes it worked, most of the time it did, but it was all pretty much as written. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't all rewritten or anything, but I just think that. Again, it's just I keep going on about yeah. the collaborativeness of it, and I think it's just helped it a lot. Just hopefully, 
say, a bit, yeah, getting the scripts right at the beginning mm. was the big thing because it was such a dialogue-driven show. Yes. That, yeah, we kind of really wanted to make sure the scripts were as solid as possible before yeah. moving forward into production, but then allowing for, yeah, changing things when, you know, when it benefited the episode, whether yeah. it's ad-libbing or... Mm. You know, changing stuff in the edit or in whatever way. So it's, but as long as we had that solid foundation of a yeah. good script, that was a really important thing. Had you done much voice directing before this? I mean, I'd, I'd done quite a lot. Not actual for given the title voice director. Um, this is my first official title of voice director, but I've done lots of. Um, in voice records and and lots of sessions and stuff in various different series and everything but it was the first time that I was in this role so it was a little bit daunting and when they offered that to me I was like oh are you sure <laughs> but then I thought about it and I thought well I know what I'm doing and then you know I was very nervous but like Matt was saying like I, Matt came into each of the actors first sessions so uh, it, that really helped in the way that that really informed me as to what Matt wants and yeah. what Matt felt was important for each character. And then from that and then working with Matt uh, where we were in the animatic edits was really good where I, that also gave me more of an idea of what Matt likes and what Matt doesn't like because a lot of the times when we're doing the voice records... I would do selects when we were doing stuff. And, and I think sometimes, more often than not, Matt's selects were different. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just uh, what was important in the records was just to get that wide range of stuff so that there was a selection. And there was, because you, you, can, you can never tell how it will play out once you've got everyone all together. And, and one thing that. Um, I wasn't sure about was because all the voice records were all via Zoom because when we started this it was all in lockdown and well it was just after lockdown when we started recording but um, I couldn't travel to London to do go into the studio so we did it all via Zoom and um, it really worked I was really surprised, but I then thought, well, when you go to a voice record, you're in the studio, and more often than not, you're you're not actually looking at the person because they're in the booth, and you're yeah. pressing a button anyway. But at least on um, Zoom, it's like I'm looking right at them; they're looking right at me, and um, you know I'm still pushing to talk and stuff. But it it really worked, and I did feel. Because we had some actors who hadn't done voice recording before as well, we've got quite a, a combination of people, it, which I think is brilliant. And um, I think a few of them still, they, they would like look at me for my reaction and stuff and make sure, like, you know, or get some feedback. So there were certain actors where I, I just made sure I was being a bit more visual with my feedback instead of my usual stillness <laughs> so it was it I absolutely loved it and and a lot of the we must say as well like the organization of this series has been well thought out yeah. and well executed and i worked with lily and lily has just 
coordinated and, and organised the voice records in such a way that she was just totally on it and that all I had to worry about was just the script and getting the recording. So that that was brilliant. I didn't have to worry about anything else. So that helped massively. And like yeah. I just think there was there wasn't anybody on the project who was rubbish really. Mm. Which we've been so lucky. Everyone's just really pitched in and worked really hard. Yeah. And we lucked out with a really good crew. Very good crew. The best. Yeah. The best. <laughs> <laughs> I did see in one of the press releases that uh, Jamie from Dairy Girls shows up at one point. Yes. Um, so I'm looking forward to that because I don't think I, of the ones I've seen, I don't think it got that far. Well, we started with seven actors um, and then as we went along and then it, all these new characters kept being added and mm. then and it was like, well, we, we really had... Um, really four actors who could do other voices really because we we had um like some proper voice character actors who could do different accents or well not accents because we tried to not do fake accents which is the other thing so we couldn't do fake accents but also we had to make sure that it wasn't just all London based so it was all very representation of Britain that was another thing yeah um so it got to the point where it, it was, we needed extra actors. So we did add some extra actors as we went along. And, and um, yes, so Jamie Lee was, was, was one of them. And she actually did two characters, which was cool. But we just had a, a few, because obviously, and that was the other thing as well, the voice record being via Zoom, um, we also were able to then have satellite studios so we did recordings in scotland wales northern ireland and france as well because alex law there who plays abacus lives in france so he he did a lot of his records via there so that that was also helped the production as well that you know also helped our carbon footprint yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is brilliant i guess the well, you've said the only difficulty the remote recording gave us was ADR. Yeah. So the delay trying to you know, match up to lip sync is quite difficult when you're doing it over Zoom. But. Yeah, there is a slight delay, which when you're recording lines, it doesn't really matter. But luckily, we didn't have an awful lot of ADR, which was brilliant. So when we did do some ADR, we did have to rely on the... It's, it's only been at the at the end where that has been. Yeah, we had a lot more ADR because you know, we're finishing with the actors. We knew they had we had a last session with them, but we so we had our last few episodes had a lot more scratch voices in them going into animation yeah. than we'd have liked. But it's just the and, nature and, of the job. And it was Tom. He was he was filming in New York as well, so we left a bit of a gap. But it was also just waiting for the last few episodes to be animatic so we were sure what we had so we could just get Tom in for one last session to sort of like yeah it was all brilliant I can't there wasn't really an aspect of it that I hated at all and like what also a a 52 times 11 minute schedule 
by a year you you're ready to end you re- you want it to finish when you're working on sometimes it's it's a lot it's hard work it's a hard slog but it's like it's got to this stage i just don't want it to end mm-hmm. i'm quite sad it is going to end are there any particular sort of favorite episodes things to kind of watch out for as they roll out see that's really hard because (laughs) matt wasn't exaggerating when he said every episode is different they are so different Mm. and um there there are favorites definitely but i think uh for me i don't know what matt's gonna say but for me it's like almost a bit like name your favorite child sort of thing but i think it's on my mood it changes. <laughs> What's your favourite episode? I don't know what my single favourite episode is, but there's definitely favourite episodes. I think the the ones that I really enjoy have been there's I mean I've I've um, discovered how I didn't expect the series to be as um yeah, you know, the story, the types of stories we could tell to be as um different as it ended mm. up being. So we got you know, some of the genre of episodes where we got a sort of horror episode and a sort of a heist episode detective um, detective episodes there's sort of genre leaning episodes which I I really enjoy those ones because I love sort of you know just digging into a particular genre and putting that into all the aspects of the comedy and the music and stuff so those episodes have been really fun to make Um, and some of the best episodes have been where it's just very much just characters talking to each other where it's, there's a couple of episodes of Lloyd stuck somewhere where you <laughs> where you know it is just the characters interacting there's no like big plot going on and I've loved those episodes because it's just that's where the yeah just the the characters themselves are driving the comedy and there's some really funny character interactions in those but the first episode uh, the long game that I, I think that was probably what that was l- probably eighth or tenth introduction made, yeah. and what we made but we bumped that forward just because we felt I think that by then we were in our stride yeah. then and but I think it's a good introduction story to Lord yeah, and Abacus and the world but um, yeah that was an early favourite of yeah. mine um, one of my favourites I would say no, it isn't. I can't say that. No, I still can't. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but it's, it's nice to have that, that we still chop and change with our favourites. And, and again, it's I've not had this before. You know, I've worked on series I've loved before, but I so love this. Mm. I'm really proud of it, and I'm proud of what we've achieved. And I hope the kids like it. But also, I think what we've done, we've managed to make it that, because I've got... A, I've got a child. I know what it's like. You know, when you're watching shows with your with your kids and it's just like, oh, God. But hopefully we've made a show that the parents will love as well. Yeah. Or, you know, are entertained. That's, you know, that's what we hope. <laughs> so what we were sort of saying in the, um, in the intro to this segment was, you know, that's, there's a kind of public service element of this podcast where we can kind of, like, steer people 
toward the good kids shows. <laughs> I do think we've done that from time to time over the years. But yeah, it's a nice thing also when you can look at something and say, oh, I, I you know, A, I know the people who are behind this, but also, oh, thank Christ, it's good. Because yeah. <laughs> it can be sort of awkward if it's a bit like cringe or just middle of the road. But this is really kind of thoughtful and... and um, yeah. I mean, it might get released and everyone hates it, but we know the crew like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what what is the good thing what i think makes it a good show what i hope is a good show is that you can tell that everyone who's worked on it really cares about it like you can see the love that's been put into it it's you know everyone all the crew just genuinely you know care about the series at least that's at least that's the impression i get from Mm. the you know what's being produced it's one one of the early things that was a worry of mine, which we were, you know, we were told right at the beginning that at the end of the, you know, it, it's an Ardman show, so it has to have that sort of, you've got to, it's almost like, it's it's got to stand up as being an Ardman show, yeah. and I'd like to think we've managed that, yeah. where it's, it's I, I don't know, there's an expert expectation I think people have for Mardman and I hope that we've made it yeah or it's you know we, we've managed that to make it stand up as an Ardman show I'd say so and also that it has its own sense of identity yes because a lot of the big hitters when it comes to Ardman do tend to have that shared look this, I think, very much has its own design sensibilities to it and its own kind of, you know, uh, not that there's anything wrong with the Shaun the Sheep, Wallace and Gromit look, but they're their thing. It's good to kind of have stuff that also sort of works in its own right and I guess maybe doesn't rely, I suppose, on the branding, for lack of a better term, of Arben, yeah. the what's made it sort of put, put it on the map. I think that this has all the sensibilities but feels like it's, you know, Part of the Ardman family. Yeah. 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 Hopefully. I think we've been really fortunate in how much, especially for a kids' TV series, we've had a lot of freedom in what we mm. could do in the series. Like, and, yeah, I think, because I think it is, it's just quite a weird series, I think. <laughs> That's what attracted me to it and what I really wanted to work on it, because, like, Matt's sense of humour is quite off-kilter, and that's what I really love and that we've been made it's like we have been given so much freedom to pursue that which I've been actually surprised about yeah but I guess they they like what they're seeing and they trust us yeah and that that I think that's really helped yeah so maybe Lloyd can be a part of the Ardman family maybe like the cool cousin <laughs> <laughs> I am always nervous about talking up the series being so good because I don't know what the audience is going to think of it yet. <laughs> well, you know, in an ideal scenario when people get it and they take to it and they uh, they take it to their collective bosoms or whatnot, you mentioned that you don't want it to end. If there is some other thing equivalent to the Young Audience Content Fund or funds from other territories, perhaps, as has happened with other series, would you want to carry this on? Would you be sort of keen to do a second series? Definitely, yeah. yeah. I think um, I, at the beginning, 
I never wanted to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, once things settled down and we knew what the series was and, and now where we are now, I'm really happy with it and would love to do more. And I think the second series would be, you know, a lot easier now we've established the characters and the humour and mm. the pipeline and I'll, I'll be in the tent outside the front door waiting for that second series. <laughs> Matt's also, uh, you know, he's got a few plans on where the characters are going as well, mm. which I want to see. Oh, yeah. That's how I thought. Is there, like, potential for other media with these characters, like picture books or...? I think so. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. Uh, there's, there's the comics. There's, a- there's so much props in this. I don't. We didn't stress it, but the, you know, the whole world that is just it's so rich, and mm. there's so many props that, from a production point of view, absolute nightmare for making it work. But you know that there is. There's, there's so many because they. The, we try to be real with like actual insects and what happens mm. to a certain point but there's also you know comics all sorts we, we want we want but, some special crumb cakes it's <laughs> a cake that's a big big massive crumb yeah there's definitely potential I'd love to see a video game where you're just exploring a huge world from an insect's perspective just stuff like that would be great yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's loads. I mean, weirdly, the I mean, one of the reasons we made Lloyd as a CG character in the first place was because they were, you know, thinking about pitching it alongside the series as a 4D ride, and so it wasn't initially intended. I oh, will do this so in case we want to make the series CG. It was just like let's do this to see how it might work in CG for, you know, something different to the series that would be in CG. But then it. Off the back of that, that's what sort of led down the road to to be to it becoming a CG two D hybrid. But yeah, I have no doubt Ardman have plenty of plans for other mediums, books and stuff. I, I think it definitely lends itself to that. Yeah, I can't wait. Mm. I'm gonna buy all <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations. Jane and Matt, thanks very much for talking to me today. Thanks Thank very you. Much. That was Matthew Walker, creator and co-director of Lloyd of the Flies, alongside Jane Davies, co-director and voice director. Definitely check it out. As I mentioned before, the um, this was one of the shows on the Young Audiences Content Fund slate. The Young Audience Content Fund, no longer a thing. Before, mm. <laughs> before the first slate could really sort of prove itself. Uh, that, uh, I think, struck everyone. I mean, this happened, you know, early on in the year. But it struck everyone as uh, a bit confusing, to say the least, and and kind of stupid and <laughs> arbitrary and not at all thought through. It's it's a, it's frustrating because you know this is the time that you know that they should have at the very least waited for. Like, let's see how these shows do, mm. right? Am I or am I crazy for thinking that, or am I naive as to how these things work? I think you're naive to put any faith in uh, decision makers. <laughs> I think yeah. that's that's where that I yeah I mean for those that obviously uh, don't know there's, there's a couple of articles on Squiggly uh, I've done one you've done one Ben on the Young Audiences Content Fund it was money that was supplied from the DCMS the Department for Digital Culture Media and Sport and it was funneled through the BFI and it was fifty seven million pounds and there was a million pound or three million pound I think went to the uh, audio. Uh, fund as well. So they were making radio programs and things like that as well. But this £57 million was just for young audiences content fund. And the caveat was that 
if you had an idea and a public service broadcaster on board who wasn't the BBC, so ITV or Channel 5 or Channel 4 or whatever, then you could apply for funding and they would fund 100% of development work, i.e. getting writers in and doing all the kind of, making sure everything worked, or up to 50% of production budgets. That's an incredibly generous chunk of change to be able to put together programs for children. And it really kind of bolsters that kind of, because if you're going with a public service broadcaster, you have to adhere to their kind of uh, ethics as well. Yeah. And so it kind of maintains that type of, you know, what makes things British, what makes things kind of, you know, uh, this kind of, you know, we, we were always told about how Great Britain can sell itself around the world. Well, this, this fund was funding those projects and it was funding all those amazing things. Lloyd of the Flies, you know, if they, they might want to make a second series, they'll have to seek alternative funding now when, you know, now the young audience's content fund isn't around, but, Lloyd is there and Lloyd will no doubt make it around the world and, uh, you know, find territories and, and countries where it'll be, uh, you know, absolutely loved as much as it will be in the UK. And the story is the same for many others. But yeah, £57 million, uh, which is now called a pilot scheme. So it was never a kind of a given, really. Mm-hmm. And it's been replaced, I think it's been replaced, or the, the government have replaced not not just for young audiences, but for all television and all film. So the all film with a um, the Global Screen Fund, which is £7 million pounds mm-hmm. worth of funding for the entire year for as many projects as apply for it. Mm-hmm. Just to put that into context, a single episode of Game of Thrones cost £8 million pounds to make. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Was it a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure they'll come up with the goods eventually, and we'll be headed to another heyday of uh, animation production. <laughs> For the time being, we can at least enjoy, you know, the spoils of what had been, you know, a brief flicker of a good idea and a good direction mm. of um, these contestable funds, as they've been described. Another show that I was actually kind of surprised was a young audience content fund show that also was um, starting this month. It was actually meant to start this week was uh, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, which was, uh, I thought, not a long time ago, a, a series of you know YouTube films. But yeah, looking at the sort of responses to it, it's from the long, long ago. All these people saying, oh my God, <laughs> these shorts are my childhood. Like, how fucking old are you? <laughs> and I guess it exemplified how, I guess, I, I hadn't really appreciated the extent to which it was a kid's thing. Because it always felt like it was sort of by 20-somethings for 20-somethings, you know, little sort of wry poking fun of, you know, these old conventions of children's programming, uh, making them all kind of sinister. That's sort of the setup of the, if you haven't seen the short films, they all start as kind of Sesame Street or like rainbow type, you know, children's, you know, let's learn about nutrition. Let's learn about time. Let's, you know, and then they just get progressively creepier and creepier and creepier. By the end, you're watching a Robert Morgan short. Yeah, exactly. Literally. It's right up my alley. They're always fun. It's mostly live action puppetry, but all the short films had little bits of animation kind of sprinkled in here and there. I don't really know if the series version, which is starting this month, is this. I assume it's the same kind of mix 
of live action and animation and um, that I imagine will be fun. I had thought it might be a good idea to do a kind of like young audience content fund double header for this uh, summer review podcast and uh, talk to the Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared people too, but uh, they didn't email me back. So <laughs> oh, boo. maybe we'll maybe we'll talk to them another time. Uh, we had them on. Uh, they're doing press in other newspapers if you want to read about them. <laughs> Uh, we've had them on a while ago. They did some stuff for Amazing World of Gumball, which is very sort of similar vein. And uh, it's Blink Productions, who, you know, we talk about quite a lot of their stuff on Squiggly. Um, I think we were talking about some of their stuff last episode of the podcast. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But like, I, I, I was expecting it to have actually started by today, but it hasn't yet. I think maybe they, I don't know why they pushed it back. I know some stuff on the BBC has been pushed back because of the Queen. So I'm not sure if that's the same with Channel 4. So that's also happening in the world of British television. I was thinking back to see if there was anything else I was kind of like excited about animation wise. Cause I'll be honest with you, d despite our position, sometimes there are little stretches of time where I do find it a bit of a struggle to really engage with what the animation industry is really producing. Hmm. And f I found, especially when it comes to feature films, you know, there's some stuff that. I tend to really, really like, but they tend to just sort of get very limited theatrical runs or festival runs and things like that. So, you know, Signe's film was an Annecy. I didn't get to see it at Annecy. I uh, hope I will see it soon. I believe I will at some point uh, in the near future. So there is stuff I'm excited about, but not a lot that I guess is being sort of like delivered to me on a plate. Mm. I've been enjoying some shows, actually. I don't know if you, you find yourself watching much like animation series these days. Now that you're presumably watching shows more for kids. Not, not as much, no. We tend to try and escape uh, the business hours and watch live action. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that is the thing is, God, live action is so great. <laughs> like, you know what? You know what's really great in the world of cinema? Live action films. Oh, my God. They're the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been watching for the world of cartoons then? You know what's what's really good, and I had nil expectations for it, but I'm really liking it, is the new Beavis and Butthead. Ah, right, yes. <laughs> and I I was always, I liked it growing up. It was kind of, I probably considered myself a fan for a very short window of time, like sort of around the time the old 90s movie came out, mm. which was near the end of the original show. And then I think I kind of maybe thought I told myself I liked it more than I did. Because a lot of it wasn't very good. <laughs> and that was a sort of a weird thing about like, or a weirdly honest thing about Mike Judge when it, the uh, DVD market eventually came about, about, you know, six, seven years after the show would have ended. Uh, he didn't release it on DVD by season. He just released the ones that he didn't think were terrible. So you could buy it on DVD, but like you couldn't buy all of it because he'd like, he's like, yeah, the other ones aren't good. <laughs> just watch these ones. These are the ones that actually hold together. And I remember that said quite a lot about his sort of like, he, you know, because he could make a lot more money, obviously, making season by season DVD releases in the year 2002. <laughs> Not now, obviously. But to actually have a kind of curational integrity about your own show and be allowed to do it, because most people wouldn't have had that option if they were the creator of a show, it would have been down to a completely different group of people. And I understood it as well, because when the show worked, there were these qualities of the characters that just kind of, the stars just kind of aligned, and there was a kind of rapport they had. It was always stupid, like they always were dim-witted, 
yeah, archetypical teenage boys, mm-hmm. one track minded kind of thing. But you did need other stuff happening kind of around them to make that work. And I kind of feel like this new show, it's looked back at those and it's really identified what made the dynamic work and just kind of done that. And basically it's Beavis and Butthead getting trapped in places. Yeah. Like they've worked. That's, that's it. That's where the comedy is. Find a way to get them stuck to something or in something or under something or on top of something. So they should just call the show Beavis and Butthead Get Stuck. Yeah. <laughs> but I've been enjoying it. I don't think Laura's been that into it, to be honest, but, you know, maybe you did have to be there to get the most out of it. They did a movie earlier on, like before the series started. And that, again, I, I went in with not very high expectations. And I think I talked about it in the last podcast because it seemed so very at odds with what the style of the show was. Yes. But that was a lot of fun, too. And it is like a kind of, you know, multiverse film, which wasn't really like anything that ever kind of came up in the old show. But they have a lot of fun with it. And, and you know, it's a it's a fluid reality, as cartoons often tend to be. I saw, I saw, a, I saw a great clip of the what they used to do back in our day, Ben, uh, is they used to talk over music videos. Yeah, and that was that was the entire thing, and now they've done it for YouTube clips, yeah. which I think is a great way. Uh, and they must I might have done it like ten years ago, whenever the the new series, the last new series was, mm. might have done it then. But I saw one where they were watching a uh, ASMR video. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so good to have those characters back. It really is. Yeah, I remember actually it was right back when we first started this podcast was when it was like rebooted for the first time, and it. It may have been good and I just wasn't in the mood, but I watched a few episodes of that and then just kind of moved on to something else. Maybe the time just wasn't right. Like maybe not enough time had had gone by. But what they tried to do then was they were still on MTV and MTV had become like young adult reality television. And it wasn't really playing music videos anymore. So they kind of were watching stuff like the Jersey Shore and... um, 16 and pregnant and things like that and so that kind of you know I, I from what i remember of that that sort of worked but yeah there's not an mtv anymore so they've kind of adapted it to and also people don't really watch television <laughs> in the way that they did back <laughs> then so yeah so that was a surprisingly um funny show you delivered just like uh but edward as well oh yeah well i think that's all my whole delivery <laughs> <laughs> Another show I really like, and I don't think anyone talks about it. It's a show called Solar Opposites. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you watched it? I have, yes. Yeah, I watched a lot of the first season. What do you think of it? First season, yeah. I watched the first season because I'm obviously a big Rick and Morty fan. Um, It's created by the same uh, same guy who did Rick and Morty, Justin Roiland, um, which I have been enjoying the new season of Rick and Morty. That's uh, two episodes in now, and they're, you know, Last season was was pretty good, um, but yeah, I enjoy I enjoyed Solar Opposites, and I've been encouraged to to watch the rest of it. Cause it's all on is it all on Disney Plus now? It's all moved over to Disney Plus. I think so. Yeah, it's Hulu, and that's Disney Plus, they, right? Yeah, there you go. So it's it's bound to be on Disney Plus. I must I must have seen it some thumbnail of it on my telly at some point, and thought ah, I need to watch that again. It, it was pretty good. It was no Rick and Morty season one, but that's always the problem with season one of anything. 
yeah. is that everything finds its feet and tries to kind of work itself out. And then you can really have some fun when you can kind of stretch your legs with the characters and uh, and all that type of stuff. Like, um, you know, uh, Disenchantment. Yeah. That's really found its pace now. It's a fantastic show. But it took a season or two to get into it and for you to get to know and understand the characters and the scenarios and what was possible. And then it subverts what you think is possible and it's just a great show. And it's the same with 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 anything. But um, yeah, have you been enjoying the show? I really like it. It's it's so stupid. <laughs> it's what's well, very smart. It's you know, like Rick and Morty. It's very intelligently written and very kind of you know physical comedy uh, oriented. And yeah, just the dynamic between the characters is is you know it's just really pleasant to have on. The sort of sub story as well. The uh, terrarium that yeah. the two like replicant kid aliens have of just like people who are shrunk down and live in the wall in these sort of like interconnected aquariums they struggle for survival and there's like a whole political overthrow <laughs> subplot within this show yeah it, and it takes itself really seriously in those scenes or not seriously but like you know it plays it you know in a much more death or glory kind of thing and then these sort of cutaways to the aliens just kind of like fucking around <laughs> with this stuff happening in the background that's about it's about aliens the premise is basically it's like a sort of third rock from the sun thing of like aliens living on earth but they're not remotely like hiding that they're aliens so the sort of neighborhood has just sort of come to accept that this alien family lives there it's good fun i just like no one really brings it up in in my circles um mind you of course i only know animators and they don't watch animation so (laughs) they want to go and watch you know rupaul well that's fine why not but not the RuPaul animation. No. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to give like a mention, because you can watch this for free on YouTube, and this just made my heart very happy, was there was a 20th, no, 25th anniversary concert of the music of South Park. Yes. And uh, that's on YouTube, and that's just great. It's like two hours of just like wonderful memories <laughs> of South Park and Primus. Primus is basically sort of like playing throughout, like on the accompaniment, and Ween is there as well, and Rush, and songs from the movie, songs from the show, songs from like Team America and Cannibal the Musical, and yeah, that's just a great thing if you want to have a you know something musical on in the background, or you could actually just I think quite happily just sit and watch it as a sort of broadcast concert, and weirdly sort of like emotional in parts, you know, you can tell that it's something that they're um. They're very kind of proud of and, and humbled by, and it's fun to kind of see them as, you know, now, you know, they got to be in their like 50s at this yeah. point, still doing those voices. And they have little things on their microphones that are kind of like pitching their voices up. So they're actually able to do some like live performances of them in character. Uh, probably the highlight for me is it's, they do a version of, uh, Tommy the Cat, the Primus song, but with Butters doing the Tom Waits part. It's fucking brilliant. It would make me so happy. So, yeah, I mean, because it's South Park, the show, of course, it's, it's not going away. They did have a new season earlier in the year, and it was really, really short. And to be honest, I don't really remember that much of it. But, like, I don't remember it being bad. I just don't really remember it being memorable so much. The last one I saw was the um, Tegrity Farms one, uh, the last season, when it was, it must have been two years on. It was the last one that was on Netflix. I've not got right. Paramount Plus or anything like that, um, which it's all gone to, I, I presume. But uh, yeah, the last episode of that, I think, was the Amazon one, where it's Jeff 
Oh, yeah. Bezos is this big sort of Star Trek monster villain from a different planet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. Which was, yeah, very good. Yeah, the integrity story is kind of, I think they acknowledge in the show it's kind of driven some people away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't mind it. It's like I say, I think, because I, I kind of, it's not like I don't care about it, but I don't, I'm not as invested, so I don't really mind about the stuff that kind of goes maybe a little bit derailed or whatever. Like it's been on the air for this long. Yeah. Like the one I would recommend, it was funny. It was like a kind of like long episode or like a two-parter and it's them as like adults. And I forget what the premise is. It's something to do with COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause they did a big, you know, stretcher. Where it's all about COVID. Um, I think it's kind of wrapping up the COVID episodes was this one set in the future. And um, like Butters has grown up to be this like NFT grifter guy. Yeah. Like selling people gifts and, you know, wiping out their life savings. <laughs> and Cartman's like a rabbi now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that when Kyle goes to Cartman's house and his and his child innocently explains Judaism to him. It's <laughs> 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 such a the kid looks just like Cartman. So it's <laughs> such, a, such a kick in the nuts. <laughs> oh, they still got it. But yeah, so that's it. There's stuff I like out there, <laughs> here and there. Oh, film I actually, I, I should mention, I am looking forward to, uh, which just had a trailer, like a proper teaser trailer release the other day, is uh, Wendell and Wild. Yeah. That's sort of pretty high on the leaderboard as the ones that I think we've all been kind of looking out for, because, you know, Henry Selleck, obviously. Um, of, and, you know, I also love Jordan Peele. Yeah. If you've seen Key and Peele. And Keegan Michael Key is also in Wendell and Wild, so I'm kind of looking forward to that sort of rapport paired with animation. I've seen a bit of it. I haven't seen. I think maybe like I've seen the first third of it, um, and it's interesting. Like visually, it's not what I expected. There's a kind of, um, and this is sort of evidenced in the trailer. There's a sort of simplicity to the production design, the sort of stylized simplicity. And then so much stop motion production, a lot of stuff is like super elaborately detailed or textured. And this is just kind of like everything just sort of speaks for itself, you know, and the character design is very kind of, um, stark and, and a lot of, a little sort of mix of like, you know, rigged and replacement. It's a business for the stop motion puppets, especially the demons, which um, like awesome art toys. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, that's a that's a good frame of reference, I would say. No, it's um, I think coming out late October. Yeah, uh, mid October, late October. So you know, it's part of a Netflix slate of um, spooky animation or spooky programming in films. They showed a clip at Annecy, and it was a, they had a turnaround. And in part of this turnaround, the character, oh, it's not that it was just a puppet turning around and you can see 360. They do something with it to make sure that it maintains like almost a two-dimensional look. Yeah. Is that something that plays in the film as well? I would say so. I think especially with Jordan Peele's character, mm. his his head is just really satisfying to watch. Yeah. Um, it's also kind of, it's, they're kind of clearly based on them as people. Like in in real life, there's certain sort of physical characteristics that you see have definitely informed the um, the puppet making, and I would expect probably quite a bit of reference footage might have been used as well. Uh, uh, it should be an interesting one. It'd be, it's nice to see you know Henry Selleck at it again because I think yeah. for a lot of people, you know, as we've talked about with the the film club podcast and stuff, he came up a few times, and I think he's just quite dear to a lot of people's hearts. You know, so 
If you know, you know. That's he's he's great. He's absolutely fantastic. It's um, it is yeah. There's there's a few there's a few good ones coming up from Netflix. Uh, one of the the same presentation because I saw this at part of the the Annecy presentation. There was lots of good stuff there, uh, particularly Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's oh, yeah. Pinocchio, because <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the reviews for Disney's Pinocchio. Uh, the Tom Hanks. Good, are they? Um, it's gone down like a poo sandwich, Ben. It's, right. uh, okay. it's, yeah, it's not, it's not really worked out as well as they might have wished it to. But, uh, I've seen five minutes or so, I think they screened of, uh, of Pinocchio at Annecy. Mm-hmm. And those five minutes were just delicious. I can't, I can't, I can't think of a better word. No. Um, the right amount of creepy, the right amount of of life, the right amount of te- the the animation in the characters are absolute is absolutely divine. Um, uh, Del Toro went on to talk about um, how he told the the artists uh, the the animators he didn't want to see kind of what you see a lot in a lot of animated films is A to B animation. So a character starts mm. there and has to go there. And I've seen it being referred to as student animation. I've seen it being referred to as, you know, you know, everyone, when you're a university student, you're, you, you're told pose to pose, pose to pose. Um, and in stop motion, you do blocking. So you know where your character is going to be. It's just a way of plotting things out. Uh, Del Toro didn't like that because it was too easy. And he's not yeah. the type of filmmaker that wants to make things easy for people. Uh, and so he insisted that it was all like straight ahead. So if a character put their hand in the wrong place, They'd have to work it out. And so there's this great moment where Geppetto is waking up. Geppetto in this film is a raging drunk. He's not yeah. a jolly, bespeckled, rosy-cheeked father. Um, he's just an absolute... He's been getting shit-faced since his son died. <laughs> Basically, that's the story. Yeah. And he gets up and it's it's David Bradley. It's um, you, you, You'll know the actor who's got a very, you know, it's tremendously sort of gruff voice. And he's just getting up with this tremendous hangover. And you can see just as he's putting his head on his, his hand on his head and just wearily trying to get up and, and climbing a ladder. And then Pinocchio comes to life because he can hear this rummaging in the attic. And it's a bit like alien because he's Pinocchio's running from side to side and he's like, whoosh, you know, from across the screen, you barely see him. Mm. And then he just, he just bursts to life and, I won't spoil it, but it's tremendous. It's an incredible reveal. There's a lot to look forward to there. And yeah, I, I can't wait to be talking about the film when we've seen it. Awesome. There you go. So there's there's, there's two films. <laughs> not not including the Disney Pinocchio. Yeah, but Disney have, have just recently released a whole lot of news for their future animation, Marvel, Muppets, Star Wars you know, everything else that they own, Indiana Jones, they've released news about all their kind of lineup. Um, so it might be worth having a little look at the animation, uh, the Disney animation side of things, because there's some, some things in here that are new, some things that are quite tantalizing, some things that, um, you know, we've seen before, uh, some good sequels, mm-hmm. maybe, hopefully. Um, but yeah, D23 is this big kind of fan expo where all the Disney fans gather to talk all things Disney. And uh, they do all the big reveals there. Uh, and the Disney animation reveal, uh, the big one is for the next animated feature after Strange Worlds. Uh, Strange World, I should say, which is um, 
uh, the feature that's coming up in November. But the next one, the next big one is called Wish. Uh, and apparently it's going to be like a kind of set in a land where wishes can come true. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of like Disney's homage to that, that kind of when you wish upon a star um, thing that they've been uh, uh, holding on to since 1940. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, that's the next uh, feature coming from them. But also Inside Out 2, which I found uh, interesting, obvious, uh, disappointing. A delete is applicable, I think. <laughs> um, what, what did you make of Inside Out? Because it runs quite cold for me. What was the name of the film that played before it about the volcanoes and love? <laughs> Lava. So I, I would rather scrape my urethra on a bramble than watch Lava again, which may be why I quite liked Inside Out at the time, because it came right after one of the worst cinema-going experiences I'd ever been through. <laughs> I've never really been drawn to it again, you know. Um, it's never beckoned to me as a film to, to watch again. I remember it being kind of... I like Lewis Black, so... Mm. The short version would be, yeah, I don't really I don't really have a feelings <laughs> either way about Inside Out. Yeah. I think, I think the film was kind of... It was mad for me because I had this thing that I, I, you know, I loved the art of books. You know, Chronicle Publishing used to deliver these, you know, incredible uh, art of books every year. And the Pixar ones were absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, you could, you could leaf through them and learn things and, uh, and, and, you know, get a real sense of behind the scenes. And then they released the one for Inside Out and it was the worst thing I've ever held in my hands. (laughs) (laughs) And um and it was it it was just so lazy it was mm. just literally just the artwork and the names next to it yeah with no kind of journey or explanation you know there was a an intro from Pete Doctor and that was it right and and it was kind of like oh man these books that i kind of absolutely adored they've kind of realized that people like me will just buy them yeah and so i don't buy them anymore <laughs> so because because you know I, 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 I'm, it's not just about pretty pictures. You've got to take people through it. You've got to, you know, lead them through the experience of creating these films yeah. uh, to, so they can have that kind of, you know, attachment to them, so to speak. Um, but yeah, Inside Out 2, there's a sequel and uh, no doubt there'll be a, a crappy book to accompany it as well. Um, but yeah, hopefully it'll be good. Um, so yeah, obviously the, uh, the, the big cliffhanger of the first film was, uh, was Puberty. Uh, that arrived at the uh, at the last minute. So uh, you know, guess what's going to happen in the sequel, Ben? <laughs> well, I'm uh, sure it will be a merry time of misrule. Uh, the other thing I've got on uh, is a film called um, Elio uh, or Elio. I'm not sure. I've not heard it, uh, but uh, uh, it's a sci-fi film. So it's like um, uh, a little kid who, by some happenstance, becomes like the representative of planet earth uh accidentally so that's that one coming up um the other thing the thing i that, that's coming up from pixar that i really like the look of is win or lose do you remember uh do you remember season three of the league of gentlemen ben uh we we literally watched all of it yesterday 
get away. Laura just randomly was like, I want to watch some League of Gentlemen. And I was like, okay, the nearest one is series three. So we'll watch that. Oh, amazing. Oh, so you- so it's quite fresh in my memory. Yeah, fresher than mine. And I'm, I'm referring to it. So you know how the, the episodes end and they're, they're all people's journeys leading to a finale or leading to something. Yeah. That, I absolutely loved that. Um, not, I mean, the first two seasons of League of Gentlemen was laugh track comedy and character comedy and everybody loved it. It was more of a sketch show. It, it was, yeah. But when they released season three, people absolutely detested it. They were like, where's my chuckles? Where's the, where's the thing telling me <laughs> when to laugh? But it was so clever and it, it was, you know, it, it kind of got mm. rid of a laugh track and it, it led the audience to expect and led the audience to, to kind of wonder what was going to happen next and how it would all come together in the end. And it looks like win or lose is nothing, going to be nothing like yeah. <laughs> the League of Gentlemen. Um, but it, it, it plays on that same promise of, of it being the same action, the same time frame. But different people's perspective, yeah. And so each episode um, is going to cover the same time span as they're leading towards this kind of. It's it's. I think it's like a softball team or or something like that, and they're leading towards like the big game. And so each episode of this season is going to kind of concentrate on this and give you a different perspective. So that's why I'm looking forward to that. Because it reminds me of the League of Gentlemen season three. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Weird you watched it. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that they've got going on is Elemental. So Ryan Gore interviewed Peter Sohn, who's the uh, uh, director of Elemental, which is going to be their, their big film that's coming out next March, I think. Uh, and the story is, uh, well, it's a, it's a character made of water uh, and a character made of fire. And you write the rest yourself. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a feel good Pixar romp. Uh, yeah, loads of other great stuff, um, coming, um, obviously from, from Disney, uh, to wash the taste of Pinocchio out of your mouth. <laughs> well, speaking of poo sandwiches, um, <laughs> did you ever see, as far as a similarly reviewed film, did you ever see that luck film? No, I did not. Uh, <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, I need closure on that gum. <laughs> like if, <laughs> if the gum, reverse gum stepping in factors into it at all. I've not seen it. It's going to be, I think it's going to be on Apple TV and I, I'm not right. on Apple TV. So I'm, I've not seen it and, and, and I, I doubt I will. I might have been tempted, but the posters for me, just talking about the visionary director of, of John Lasseter. The visionary genius who brought us unwanted hugs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, something really random I kind of uh, came across uh, doing like some sleuthing, but not really sleuthing so much as, as just coming across things. As I think we've discussed, but I don't think it's come up in the podcast because it sort of happened in between this podcast and the last podcast. But I returned to the world of freelance very briefly um, for about a month in the summer. Uh, and now working somewhere else. But there was a point where I was just sort of looking to see what freelance gigs were going. And um, I was like, you know what? I've never tried for job postings. LinkedIn. Surely <laughs> a website designed for, for the workplace and networking, that those job postings will be, jeez Louise. Like, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a complete waste of time, but it was like, it, it really does sort of go to show 
how casmically different are the, the realities of like getting and securing work and looking for work on places like that. One of them was, and I might have taken it, and it was actually a, a closed job posting. I might have applied out of the curiosity. Animation and layout and backgrounds and stuff for the Ren and Stimpy show. Wow. Which, as far as I think we were both concerned, and everyone I knew was concerned, doesn't exist. Uh-huh. Because uh, it had been basically protested against. Mm. Uh, not unreasonably. My main sort of point of agreement is, you know... I, I think the one we got 30 years ago was fine. I don't, I don't think it needed it to be rebuilt. So, of course, all that stuff came up, and we talked about it on the podcast at the time, and it, you know, it was bad news all around. There was a documentary about uh, Ren and Stimpy and him. Uh, yeah, it's all stuff that's been covered. But the conclusion at the end of the day was the attempt to revive it had been kind of extinguished because it just really wasn't interest. And the people who kind of cared the most about it were probably the most against it. Mm. And the people that weren't bad people that were great artists on it didn't seem to be involved from the outset either was the other issue that people had. Yeah, so this company is hiring for animators to work on the Red and Stimpy show. So I, I looked into it, and I think it's the same company that's doing the Daria spinoff, which if you, I think we talked about this at the time. They're doing we did, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a studio that's from their, like, it's called Awesome Inc., I think. And it's predominantly run by women. So one of the people who's, like, on this show as a consultant, which I also saw on LinkedIn, is the woman who started the petition to get the Ren and Stimpy show cancelled. Oh. Who was also the woman who kind of kick-started the BuzzFeed article. Yeah, yeah. Because she had been, you know, part of this web of, like, awfulness when she was very young. So it feels like this studio's kind of like got her on side and she's kind of helping shape the new version of it. Ah. So that kind of puts a, a very odd spin on the whole thing. And I'm not sure if it completely changes my mind about it. I mean, the proof is always in the pudding. I'm generally kind of loath to, to even really sort of dip into reboots of stuff that I liked. But as I mentioned, you know, a little while ago, I, I took a look at this new Beavis and Butthead, and that was actually a really pleasant surprise. Mm. But again, I think because I, I actually did really like Ren and Stimpy as a kid at the time, like I was a proper, proper fan of it, rather than being sort of casual fan of Beavis and Butthead, I'd still be kind of reluctant. So I don't know, I just, uh, those are something that kind of came onto my radar in animation sort of news. Uh, Fascinating. The plot thickens. The plot thickens indeed. Yeah. Have I talked about fake festivals? Have we had that chat? Not recently. We've, we've had a few chats about stuff like that over the years, but I don't think... Yeah, I've, I've recently... I get a regular email from somebody from a, a short film festival. Hmm. And the email starts, Congratulations, uh, Mr. Henderson. Your film has successfully met all the requirements necessary to uh, form part of our lineup. Uh, at this year's uh, this year's festival, and you read this email, and I'm like, "Wow, this is this is wonderful news because I don't have a film. <laughs> this is brilliant. What what do I have to do in order to 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 get the top prize and to 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 you know to to go to this far flung wonderful place? And you know, all I have to do is is submit my film for the you know the princely sum of you know insert fifty dollars here yep. or, or or whatever." 
you know, and, and if I meet it within the, you know, the March, March deadline, you know, there's, there's like a hundred dollars or ninety dollars. And it's, you're looking at this and you're thinking, wow, this is, this is really quite mad. Uh, mm. what worried me is obviously the fact that this email could quite easily have landed in the inbox of somebody who does have a film. Yeah. And who, who is perhaps a little bit more naive and welcomes a, uh, an encouraging, uh, congratulations, your film's brilliant. Uh, please submit your film for $50. Um, and so I, I went on a little bit of a sort of rummage to try and find out more about this particular festival. And, and I'm not going to name it, but what I will do is kind of talk through the kind of obvious things, I think. And I think these are things that you could probably share as well in your own journey of submitting short films for festivals and things like that. And, and you know, because you don't just submit to the festivals you've been to. You submit to the festivals that you've not been to. You submit to as many different ones as possible. It might be worth talking about a few of the things for people to look out for, if the things, you know, if people are kind of concerned. I mean, the first thing, like red flag, would probably be an unsolicited email, I suppose, is probably the uh, the first thing. I mean, how would you react to that, Ben? Knowing if you had a film in your in your kind of Doing the rounds and and playing playing well at festivals and getting a good reaction. What what would what would ring the alarm bells for you? So the email you've sort of described, you start to get very frequently if you have been submitting your films to festivals, especially if you use stuff like Film Freeway. Film Freeway is a great platform, but you should use it alongside other methods. When it comes to unsolicited emails. I actually got one not that long ago, and this is one that I would say is more legit. So let's see if I can pop that up. Okay, so this is um, this is an email I got unsolicited. Uh, this is Pauline from uh, Insert Festival Name here. <laughs> Our association is dedicated to showcasing independent visual creation and digital arts, as well as developing film literacy actions using short films, animated films, and new images. The association reinforces its support to institutional and socio-cultural actors thanks to a wide range of initiatives. Now, that's sort of odd phrasing. It's slightly broken English, I would say. Mm. So I, you know, I would scrutinize that a bit by looking at the email signature and where this person is actually emailing from. This is actually coming from a legit organization. It's a festival that's quite liked and well attended. Uh, it's not one I would have submitted to, probably, but they go on to ask if um, they can look at my preview link, having seen that someone on their team will have seen my film at another festival and put it on a list for them. Mm. It was a little bit like when uh, we did um, the touring program, This Is Not A Cartoon, yeah. and I'd go on like little scouting missions to festivals and give Jen sort of lists of you know suggestions for films to put in, that kind of deal. So yeah, the the phrasing isn't necessarily a red flag if um, it seems maybe a little sort of, you know, and it wasn't anything like really off about what they were saying. They were just describing what the event was. It was just kind of slightly overly wordy, perhaps, or oddly worded. So then I get a follow-up email a couple of months later after having sent them the preview link, basically saying they want to screen up the date, the time, the venue. Again, that all kind of checks out. You look at the website, you kind of automatically get a feel that Okay, this is this is okay. This is legit. But 
if you're not sure, look at what other films have played there is usually a good sign. Uh, for animation festivals, the best port of call is still Aaron's website. Mm. It's uh, animation-festivals.com. Check if they have a listing on there. You know, some, I mean, sometimes that website, you know, there are festivals that are brand new and so they haven't had a listing on there yet. So, you know, if it's in the early stages and they have yet to prove themselves as a festival, you might want to just give them a punt anyway. Basically, don't give anyone money is, is the way to go. <laughs> like with any, any, any scam, anything that actually sort of say, okay, well, you give us a bit of money now. And you might be in with a, you only put money toward a festival 100% on your terms when you have been the one to seek them out. And I wouldn't give money to a festival that isn't a major award qualifier. If your reason for submitting to festivals is industry standing, you know, you want something that will qualify you for a BAFTA or an Annie award, probably more likely. If some people, of course, it's the Oscars, whatever. Depends on where you are in the world. Now, even if you don't want a BAFTA or an Oscar or whatever, the fact that it is a qualifying festival will automatically mean that it's not operating out of some back room mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's, or your film is going to play to like a conference room with no one in it, <laughs> which as often you know, happens with these sort of scam festivals is they do put on something, but it's really low effort and kind of shitty. Even still, let's look at Manchester, for example, all you have to do if you go into the Manchester Animation Festival website is you can look at, you know, what is on the dais, what's on the lineup. Look at the previous editions, which you can do on your website, which I think is great. Like, you can go back in sort of previous editions and see what the events have been, who the guests have been. Mm-hmm. That is what sort of gives it legitimacy as well. But yeah, I, if you just haven't had a film in a festival and someone's showing an interest... I'm not saying your film is bad. <laughs> it's it, it, just be cagey. Just be just be cautious. Well, this this is this this was the thing with with mine is like I instantly knew it was a scam because I don't have a film. Yeah. But and then I went through to the to the website and exactly what you said. Like, there's no pictures from previous year's editions. There's no like links to who the director is, for example, or who the producer of the festival is. There's no links to the venue. There's no links to, it just tells you the country it's going to play in. Yeah. And it looks like a pretty good website. It's not too bad. You click on submit and it takes you through to Film Freeway, uh, which is what we spoke to as well. But it takes you through to a non-public listing, which is one of those listings where it won't end up on Film Freeway's website if you go searching for it. You can only get to it if you've effectively, you've walked that walk. If you've clicked on their website link on your email and then on their submit link through, you go through to Film Freeway and then give Film Freeway your money and they'll, Film Freeway will then give them, give the money to scam short film festival. Yeah. And as well, this, this kind of, you know, if you, on Film Freeway, there are ways in which you can get your scam festivals listed and that's by purchasing kind of gold. You know, you're this kind of, kind of, you know, you can, you can ensure that. But the other, the other dead giveaway for me was the amount of awards and prizes that this particular festival gives away. <laughs> so there's best independent shot, best international shot, best documentary, best animation, best experimental, best music, best web, best micro shot, best pilot, best women empowerment shot, best human rights film, best LGBTQ plus shot, best female director, male director, producer, original screenwriter, unproduced short film script. 
Cinematography, editing, sound design, original score, composer, <laughs> production, makeup, actor, actress, ensemble, trailer. Yeah. Shall I carry on? Best poster. There's loads. There's absolutely loads of these. <laughs> Best poster. I mean, are you really like, mm, well, if they've not fall, if they're not taken the bait before, maybe they've got a good poster. <laughs> And then if you look on the right-hand side of this, you've got best COVID film, mm. best dance film, best horror short, best... Oh, my God. There's so many of these kind of insane... Um, and all of them cost an absolute fortune to submit your work to. So, yeah, I I just got the web the email through and thought... Yeah. Worth a chat, you know, because people are being scammed and people don't have money <laughs> to throw away. So, yeah. Look out for that, folks. Definitely when I uh, was putting my student film out in the world, sort of going back to what we were talking about a bit before, and having people, you know, that I knew whose films were actually sort of doing the circuit and being part of a lot of, like, legitimate festivals and stuff like that, and not really kind of having a frame of reference for what was and wasn't legitimate, uh, I definitely Mm. just blasted it. Um, I, I probably submitted my student film to 200 festivals, completely like with no like uh, discrimination but i guess when it came to paying i did discriminate um i did look into what sort of standing they had and there were some that you know were like ostensibly fancy events but then i don't think people really kind of talked to them i remember one of them was like sort of co-founded by rutger hauer or he was like a spokesperson for it but like why does that matter to me? Like as a guy who made a film about a zombie duck, like ooh, the Blade Runner guys might like it. I recently, when I had a bit of downtime in the summer, I finally put together like a personal website, which I haven't had in like nearly 10 years. I've had like a blog, but like not something that just kind of collects the work I do. And that was a kind of nice sort of trip down, you know, memory lane of like the, the projects and stuff that I've worked on and going through. So I have like little sections for each film I did basically kind of taking as a template people I know who, who make films and talk very briefly about them on their website. Whereas, you know, when I would have started, I would have probably made a website for each film because they were that damn good. But of the, I think in the end, like that student film got to a, into about 50 fe- film festivals. Of those 50, one, two, three, four. Yeah, four of them are, are festivals that you'd give a shit about, <laughs> you know? And one of them actually doesn't even exist anymore. It's Anima Mundi. Mm. You know, it was it was great when it was around. It's just disappeared. So that's a shame. But, you know, I think at the, for as long as it was around, it was a pretty well-regarded one. Yeah. But yeah, it was and Puff Shorts and Clement Farrand, which is like a pretty big one. All of the others, like, just weren't even putting up on it because mo- most of them only lasted one edition. That's what you learn as well. A lot mm. of festivals are very much a one-and-done type thing. And, you know, a lot of them also, they're just kind of lame. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you, you you learn, I guess, it's sort of a thing. It's like, you know, and my first film was flawed. I think my latest film was is flawed in some respects. Like, you learn to be a bit less kind of... I don't know. You bolster your own self-esteem enough to be able to be picky. What will work for one festival won't work for another festival. There is, it isn't like, it isn't that the good festivals automatically don't like your film or are less likely to like your film. It's, it's a bit of a crapshoot in that respect. Um, none of my other films have ever gone into Clement Farrand. Like that's, that's, if I, that's one of the things, if you tried to do, to shoot for that, like it would be really hard. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a fluke with the student film. 
so you, when you, you you do it enough, you realize, okay, there are enough flukes to kind of make this worth it. But also you don't necessarily need to devote all of your time to do these big blasts and stuff. Look around Film Freeway, get a sense of it. Again, look around animation-festivals.com. You know, they, they say don't judge a book by its cover. I think you can excuse that when it comes to festivals and their branding. If a festival is well-branded, <laughs> it's usually pretty good. And then there are festivals where it's just word of mouth. People just like them, and they don't need to try so much. So uh, K-Rock, or Croc, the one that's on a boat, I'm sure it's not happening at the moment. I don't think it's been going since COVID even. What, well, a boat that sails from Russia to the Ukraine? Yeah, I think that's probably not going to be... <laughs> <laughs> it's probably going to be on a hiatus yeah. just for you know politics man yeah yeah but when it was when it was going people loved it yeah people talked about that a lot very fondly it was kind of cheap and cheerful i guess but like it was just a fun boat holiday for a lot of people and <laughs> i remember bill plimpton kind of turned me around on it he talks really highly about it in one of his books and i had actually been very resistant to submitting my films to it because you look at the website, go to krockfestival.com, and I'm looking at it now. It's exactly the same as it looked like 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and 10 years ago, it already looked a bit sus. You know, the first thing you see is a, a big gray window with this plugin isn't supported. Because <laughs> they just don't make the program anymore. And you got these little animated GIF things, and, you know, it's 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 very of its time i guess it's sort of frozen in amber uh i would say so i was actually a little resistant to kind of send stuff to it and then actually i think i started to once um i kind of read that actually it's a good time you know and that the people who run it were you know nice people and that kind of thing so again probably not going to be high on your list right now but uh it makes a case for not necessarily writing off a festival if it looks a bit shunk yeah Nice. Well, lesson learned, hopefully. Well, on that note, by which I mean I've run out of stuff to talk about <laughs> in this little uh, Google Drive document of notes, uh, let's let's bugger off. Was, uh, I think we did a fine podcast, and frankly, they're lucky to have what they get. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. While we're speaking about festivals, a real festival that's happening, um, Manchester Animation Festival, we are announcing our full programme. Uh, and films in competition. The 22nd of September is when you need to go down to the uh, MAF Facebook page, Twitter page, and all that sort of stuff, and website, obviously, to find out more about who's coming to Manchester in November, and the festival's taking place from the 13th right the way through to the 18th. So we've got an extra couple of days of MAF goodness this year. So, yeah, uh, looking forward to seeing everybody uh, up in uh, up in Manchester in November again, and I'm looking forward to being able to talk about the lineup. Really excited about that. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to a return to the uh, the olden days of a, a live quiz, perhaps. Oh yes, and uh, some goodies therein. <laughs> I mean, that's guaranteed. That's not a giveaway. The squiggly quiz is returning, exclusive, <laughs> a mainstay. Marvellous. Thanks again to Jane Davies and Matt Walker for joining us in this episode, and catch Lloyd of the Flies on CITV. We've been Squiggly. Our website is squiggly.co.uk. We're on Instagram at squigglyanimation. On Twitter at squiggly. Uh, Facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Uh, for all your squiggly, uh, all the squiggly goodness that you, you need in your life. And believe me, you need it. Before I sign off, I've got a few things to plug. Firstly, for our German listeners, my latest short film, Speed, 
We'll screen as part of Interfilm Berlin's German touring program, Shorts Attack, in October. Uh, it's part of the program Where Love Falls, and it's going to be playing all throughout Germany. Uh, you can find out more specific info at shortsattack.com. It's in fine company alongside films like Dollar Nature by Marcel Borelli and Pussy by Renata Gazirowska. Both films that we've talked about on the various uh, squiggly animation podcasts, as well as Just a Guy by Shoko Hera, who appeared on Intimate Animation not that long ago. So yeah, look out for Where Love Falls throughout Germany in October. Earlier than that, uh, later this month, Speed will also screen as part of a Encounters Film Festival retrospective program, Strange Hearts. And this will take place Wednesday, September 28th at 11 a.m., at Bristol's Watershed. Hopefully I'll be there for that one, so if you're around, uh, do say hello. Again, it's among some strong films, including previous Intimate Animation podcast guests Renee Zahn, uh, her film Soft Animals, and Will Anderson, his film Betty. Should be a fun program overall, so yeah, uh, excited about that. In fact, around Encounters time, uh, the very next day, September 29th, we have a special squiggly rumpus sun and moon joint uh, shindig, knees up. Uh, return to the old days of uh, the animation meetups at Kong's that were usually around Encounters time. We haven't done one since before the pandemic, and it would be absolutely fantastic to see all the wonderful people we've missed over the years, whether you're local to Bristol, if you happen to be in town, if you want to make the trek, whether you're a student animator, whether you're an established animator, whether you're close personal friends of ours or would just like to say hello, one and all are welcome. And that's going to be at Kong's in Bristol, September 29th from 7pm. Go to the Squiggly Events page for more details on that. We also have a Facebook events page and we'll be posting updates and whatnot. We're actually looking for animation to project uh, without sound. I mean, there'll be music playing, but uh, we would like a sort of visual backdrop of animation talent. So if you have clips of stuff that you've worked on or projects that you've worked on, uh, anything really you'd like to send our way, we'll take a look at it and maybe throw it into the projection. Uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. So yeah, that's the Bristol Animation Meetup BAM at Kong's on September 29th. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I was doing some work for the Frederickstad Animation Festival uh, as part of their pre-selection team. I'm going to be back in Frederickstad for the festival in October. It runs from the 20th to the 23rd. I will be doing the Filmmaker Q&A, so definitely check those out if you happen to be at that festival. It's entirely possible we'll have another podcast out before then, but I wanted to give it a shout on the off chance that we don't. So maybe see you in Frederickstad as well. Uh, you can find out more information about the festival and all its events at animationfestival.no. I've been Ben Mitchell. You can find me on Instagram at Ben L. Mitchell. And uh, as I mentioned, that new website, it's ben-mitchell.co.uk. You can take a look at all the other crap I've been up to, like music and graphic novels. And well, that's about it. You've been Steve Henderson. I, I certainly have. Sorry, I, I, I forgot who I was for a second there. Yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm usually grumbling on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. Uh, I still like the, the hate and vitriol that, that Twitter supplies me with, Ben. I'll, uh, I'll stick around there. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, happy animating. Bye-bye.